The Sunday Sit-Down on Algoa FM. Clem Santa, thank you very much for joining us on Algoa FM for the Sunday Sit-Down. You're a very well-known person for a lot of very good reasons. And uh, I suppose it it's, uh, would be remiss of us not to find out a little bit about you before you tell us what it is that you think we should be knowing or focusing on. Yeah, uh, Sean, um, thanks for allowing me to be on your show. And I was uh, basically brought up in the uh, UK, in Suffolk and London, after the Second World War. I went to school in London, uh, junior school, and then I went to senior school in Hampshire, a place called Winchester. And um, then, I, then I went up to Oxford University, and then... Um, I joined Anglo-American, the company I've worked for all my life. Yeah. And they sent me to Zambia for two years, uh, from 71 to 73. And then I spent the rest of my life down here in South Africa. And I really feel South Africa's my home. Uh, I spent longer in South Africa than than when I was brought up in the UK. (laughs) Right. I was thinking to myself, uh, across the, the schools that I went to, I am pretty sure that you may have been a guest speaker, for instance, um, at Dale College in King Williamstown for a prize giving or something like that at, at a point. Absolutely. I was. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm not going mad then. <laughs> what a great school. <laughs> right. I, I thought, hold on a second. Um, I, I think most people's knowledge of you, um, people who are let's go with, you know, kind of over 30 or 35, would be the association to Anglo-American. Of course, though, you have become fairly revered as a futurologist, something that surely must command a great deal of, uh, of respect. But before we get on to the, the, the meteor topics of today, when you and I were chatting during the course of the week and setting up the recording time and, and, and stuff like that, one of the things you you told me was um, when you were at Oxford, uh, you had a, a brush with, with stellar-type faith. Yeah, well, um, when I was um, about 10, my mother gave me a ukulele that she bought bought in Portobello Road, and I played that for a couple of years at junior school. And then my godfather, who was an Australian, gave me a Spanish guitar, and I started playing that in senior school. And it was the time of skiffle groups and rock bands in in the sort of mid to late 50s. And so we formed the school's first uh, sort of skiffle rock band uh, in the sort of late 50s. And um, one, of the, one of the was a real friend of, the, of mine. He was a lead guitarist. And we went to Paris in spring of 63 and played there in a restaurant called L'Auberge Notre Dame. And we were called Les Gassons. And uh, we played quite a few French songs. And then when we came back to the UK and went up to Oxford together, uh, we, we played as a duo and uh, we played in the Oxford uh, Union Cellars every Friday night. And we played the sort of latest songs of the Beatles and, um, and other groups. And it just so happened that Magdalen College in 1964 had its summer ball. They asked the Rolling Stones not just to appear as a cabaret, but to actually play because they were an up-and-coming London band. And we were also asked to play um, in the nightclub there. They played in the main room, and we played in the nightclub. And, uh, yeah, I feel quite good about that, but uh, I shared a gig with the Stones. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> There's a thing. In fact, it's on, it's on, it's on uh, uh, the... Uh, unless if you Google Rolling Stones 60, 
64 Oxford, uh, or Oxford 64, uh, there's a program that they sign which was sold by Bonhams, and it has all the acts on the, on the program. And you'll see Clem and John, and that was, uh, that was us. And, yeah, it was great fun playing the guitar at that time because people were making up such incredible songs. I remember one dance uh, we were playing there, and they had a cabaret of the Trogs. And uh, the guy who was the lead singer was called Reg Presley. Yeah. And uh, he obviously made a massive hit out of Wild Thing. But what people don't remember so much is he wrote um, the song, which uh, was a huge hit for Wet, Wet, Wet. That's right. In, in Four Weddings and a Funeral. You know, I feel it in my fingers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel it in my toes. <laughs> It's and it was brilliant. You know, there he was, a bricklayer, before he um, became a, a musician. And he wrote this, this incredible song, which I think was one of the biggest hits of the 1990s. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, really, th- I, I really do think that it, that it was. It's interesting. So you are my fourth guests um, on the Sunday sit-down for 2022. The first two are people who found their true calling whilst studying and stopped studying. It turns out that while you were studying, you were involved in the arts, but you continued studying and did follow the path we now know very well that um, has, has made you, as I said, taken very seriously by many as a future scenario planner and an, and an outcome kind of man with the magical crystal ball, it would appear. Uh, yeah. so- Sean, I'll say one thing, which is that you know, I had an incredible team, Anglo-American, during the 80s, and that's how I established my reputation, was this sensational team in South Africa and in London who wrote scenarios for the world economy and South Africa in the 1990s. But what I was very good at was actually performing on the stage, which I'd got from my sort of rock and roll career. And so... You know, I always say to people who are futurists and scenario planners, you've got to put as much effort into the presentation as, as the content. Into the content. Yeah. Oh wow. That yeah. That that even is a is a is a useful point. I would estimate. Skipping forward to um, the world we're in now has gone through a period of massive uncertainty, and it feels. Uh, I've I've phrased it like this to to quite a number of people. It feels to me like the last two years. Are, have only been a day because so many days were the same for such a long, 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 long time because everybody was working from home. You couldn't really go anywhere. But similarly, it also feels like the last two years have been a decade in many senses as as well. So with that kind of disconnect for so many people, what are you saying is happening with, let's start with, with um, international kind of trends and forecasts well, and then move on well, to local ones? Pandemic, yeah. Um you know, I think it was brilliant. South Africa, you know, basically um, discovered the Omicron uh, variant uh, and said that it was milder than the previous one. And, um, you know, it was more infectious. But this could be, you know, the the, the, the kind of swan song of the pandemic uh, in, in the sense that uh, fatalities would go down and that ultimately there would be herd immunity in the world. And, of course, in South Africa, we have seen the the peak of the Omicron uh, variant. So, really, there are two scenarios now. One is that the the pandemic becomes an endemic and the, the, the coronavirus becomes like flu, where you probably get an annual jab. But the other, obviously, is that there could be another variant 
that we don't know about, and which comes out of the blue like uh, Omicron did. So one plays both scenarios, but I'm I'm quite hopeful that um, you know we may be in the last stages. And as you rightly say, it's it's a kind of lost two years for many people, particularly young people who were at school and uh, and university. It's it's been absolutely terrible for for them. Yeah, very much so. So on to the international. So when when you and I spoke before, and you mentioned flags, I hadn't read the article yet. I thought. When, when you were saying five flags to look out for in 2022, I thought we were literally talking flags of countries. Then obviously I read the article and realized that it's not. It's kind of, um, why do you use the term flags? Well, the flag, it's, it's, it's because a flag signifies something. It can be seen as something that's going to happen. And rather than talking about signals, I like to talk about uh, flags. And one of the, real points of being a good futurist is to try and separate the signals from the noise because there's just so much uh, that uh, you get uh, given through social media and through newspapers and watching the television that you want to really see what are the kind of real forces driving the present into the future. And I describe those as flags because they're the ones that you should be watching all the time to see whether, you know, the game is changing in one direction or another. And, for example, in this article, the very first flag I talk about is the red flag, and it's to do with America's relationship with both China and Russia, which has actually not been good over the last year, uh, with uh, Biden basically saying that America is a democracy and he wants a coalition of democracies against you know, the two autocracies in the world, China and Russia. So there's been a, a lot of negative sentiment. And uh, this has led to what I write about in the article, the crisis at the moment of a possible uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and, and I say, you know, it can be solved two ways. It can either be jaw-jaw, which is diplomacy and uh, lots of telephone calls, and they find some wording which covers the fact that Ukraine won't become a member of NATO, which is a red line for Russia, or, you know, one gets involved in a real war when um, Russia invades Ukraine, which obviously could spread because it's Europe, and it will create a huge amount of um, problems in terms of energy supplies for Europe and stuff like that. And, of course, it could ultimately develop into a third world war. And that's the whole point of being a scenario planner, is that you explore the whole narrative of a flag and and, and try and write it like a movie script so that people actually uh, listen to you. And as, as, as I said in the article, you know, everybody knows about mutually assured destruction, that if two sides have nuclear weapons, they can destroy each other. Correct. But the problem is uh, a philosopher who was called David Hume, Scottish philosopher, in the 18th century said reason is the slave of passion and we do so many things because of our emotion and passion and it's just possible that putin or biden or you know can 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 trigger a war just by you know being so angry about the 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 other side so 
it is a scenario, and of course it would be huge for this world, because we had two world wars in the last century. It would be just awful if we repeat the whole process and kill millions of people in, in a third world war. But I put it in as a scenario. It hasn't got a huge probability um, at this point in time. But you've got to watch very carefully about the personal relationship between Putin and, and, and Biden. Right. Moving on then to the so-called green flag. Yeah, that's even bigger in my mind. It's more long-term. It's not a short-term crisis like um, the Ukraine, which has to be watched day to day. It's, it's really climate change. And I first wrote about it with two South African environmentalists in the late 80s. Uh, we produced uh, a book called South African Environments in the, in, in the 20th century. And um, we, we, we basically wanted to get across that it wasn't a gradual warming up of the world that was, could be a problem, even though that would cause rising sea levels and ultimately uh, put coastal cities at risk and, of course, um, change the ecology of the oceans. It was extreme weather patterns would become more frequent. And boy, oh boy, have we seen that over the last two or three years. Extreme rainfall, extreme drought, extreme heat. I did a session in Australia um, with South Australia and the Premier, Premier's office there. And the Murray River, which is the largest Australian river, is actually drying up because of the, the heat uh, in the area where it flows. And so it's changing the whole of agriculture in South Australia to become much more smart about water management. And so it's, it's a long-term flag, this, and we're all going to have to adapt to it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's only in this century that the fact that the planet um, has to be considered very carefully is, is now huge in terms of, you know, the way we live on Earth. And we must all look at our own carbon footprints in the process. Right. Uh, that being said, um, you, you find um, that with a, a global climate summit, uh, they all went there in private jets and there were long, 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 long queues of limousines, which makes you wonder a little, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and I've, I've, I can't remember the exact statistic we quote, Mitch Ilbury and I, in the book Thinking the Future, which we uh, published in June last year, but it's something like, you know, uh, the richest 1% of people on Earth have twice the carbon emissions of the poorest 50% of the world's population. So, yes, the first uh, real <laughs> people to change have to be, um, yeah, the rich and the famous. <laughs> Which brings us to, quite neatly then, to, to the next flag, inequality. Before, before you start addressing that, the one thing that I've, I've noticed uh, about the pandemic um, in general is that it seems to have made for greater inequality because during the time of the pandemic, it would appear that the rich got richer and the number of poor people and how poor they are seems to have increased dramatically and disturbingly. Yeah, and, and in fact, Oxfam came out with a statistic, you know, after I'd uh, written that article the previous weekend, which is the richest 10 people in the world, uh, which obviously includes Elon Musk, <laughs> yes. um, doubled, doubled their wealth during the pandemic. Um, I mean, it's an amazing statistic, that, but... You know, the high-tech companies have obviously done extremely well because we've lived in this sort of digital universe 
uh, in our homes as we communicate with, uh, with other people, and it's been very good business for them. And on the other hand, a lot of small businesses, despite government as- emergency assistance, um, have gone under because they, they simply haven't had the high street clientele. Tourism has uh, not been good. And, and so, you know, the ordinary person in the world has actually had a very tough existence, as you were saying at the very beginning, um, over the last uh, two years. And this has created a level of anger which is changing the political dynamic in the world. It's leading to much more polarized uh, societies in America. It's the Republicans versus the Democrats. And, and, and they don't talk to each other. Uh, in the UK, there's a lot of frustration amongst uh, people in the North um, about um, how their own, their own lives have, have not actually recovered yet, whilst uh, people in London are starting to party again. So this, some, this some, some of inequality in... could, you know, basically change governments. It could, it could change uh, so many things because, you know, we've got uh, social media, which, which, which is a very good way of, of getting your message across now. And, uh, and, and so there could be a lot of surprising new leaders, uh, populist leaders, nationalistic leaders as a result of this particular flag. Right. Um, a, a question just kind of in an almost aside. What is the point um, of, of the super rich amassing insane amounts of wealth? In other words, you, you would find it impossible to spend that why would you hold on to it? Why wouldn't you use your insane wealth for good to, to kind of improve the quality of life of, of the majority of people? Well, you know, some of them have, are trying. Bill Gates has got this movement called the Living Pledge where he's trying to get other billionaires to, to basically pledge 90% of their wealth towards um, improving people's lives around the world. But, um, yeah. I mean, they are insanely rich, um, and you know what do you do about it? That's why I said at the end of the uh, section on the inequality flag, we've got to find ways of tweaking the capitalist system, which still allow entrepreneurs to you know turn their ideas into companies and then make money out of those ideas. That mustn't be stopped because that is one of the primary primary ways of advancing a, a nation is to really encourage new entrepreneurs. But on the other hand, um, as you rightly say, there's all this money sort of sitting in vaults doing nothing uh, when there are lots of people, particularly now with the pandemic uh, being where it is, um, who are living very harsh lives. So, you know, one wants to have a conversation about around how do you actually uh, change the system um, to still allow entrepreneurship to create all these, you know, new companies doing new things, but um, do not have this problem of just having these insane amounts of money uh, sitting, you know, in a kind of sterilized uh, vault uh, doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. Now, f- funny that, that, that we've just been speaking about the inequality and the, the super rich, because the um, fifth um, international flag relates to crowded space. 
and there appears to be an ego-based race to, I'll do better things in space than you, says Jeff Bezos to Elon Musk. And then, you know, I don't know, do the Rothschilds jump in? Um, (laughs) What happens next? Yeah, well, we put the flag in because, as as we said in the book, um, the, the flag pinpoints our dependence on satellite systems to communicate with one another. And what would happen, happen if the Internet went down worldwide because two satellites crashed and the resulting debris caused widespread damage to our international communication network? You know, nobody's really worked through that. And at the moment, the, the, there's only one law which was written in, I think, 1967, governing space. Um, and so everybody's sending stuff up, uh, up into space. Um, including, as you say, uh, Jeff Bezos and and Elon Musk. And indeed, you know, the Chinese have complained that one of, you know, one uh, satellite came quite close to their space station uh, recently. And, yeah, there's there's actually a story now that there's a SpaceX satellite that's going to actually hit the moon um, because it's sort of gone into its own orbit. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff now happening in space because of all the countries that are sending uh, satellites up. But now, obviously, the super rich have joined them with their, you know, little trips up and down uh, out of the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. And, and so, you know, it's like the laws of the road. You're going to have to have some kind of uh, governance in space in order to avoid a serious crash, which could lead to the sort of black eyes of banking and, and, and the international um, internet and, and social media and everything else in the world. I mean, can you imagine this, you know, particularly during this pandemic, what it would be like if suddenly nothing works? And so that's why we, we have it as our last flag. <laughs> right. That is actually so hard to wrap your head around. Um, it, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's quite a thing, and it really, really would be. There would be utter utter chaos. It would be utter chaos, and uh, and and so you know we're all concentrated on pandemic and the coronavirus and on the Ukraine and everything else, and and but that's the whole point of of being uh, a futurist is you try and identify the flags that could really change our lives so that if any article or piece of news comes up, you could then say, does this change the kind of scenario that flows out of that flag? And does it increase its probability of being a good one or a bad one? It's, 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 it's just a nice way of screening all the stuff that you're getting every day and, and deciding what's actually influential for you as an individual, uh, for your your own family, uh, for your community, and then obviously for the country and the world at large. It's just a, what, what I've tried to do with Mitch Ilbury and Thinking the Future is just make it much easier to, um, to, 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 to think about the future. <laughs> right. On to then the, uh, is it one, two, three, four, five, six South African flags? If, if, you, if you look at kind of how things have gone in kind of over the years, uh, under, under the ANC, for instance, um, it's, it's, it's very easy to lose hope. So, because I mean, one, the, the first flag relates to corruption. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly um, important flag. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's cr- corruption and crime and violent crime. You cannot have a, a successful society with uh, corruption and, and violent crime. And, you know, at least we've had now the, 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 the state capture uh, tribunal. It was, I think, very well done. And the report is, is very good. Now, of course, uh, people are waiting for the action. But at least we've now put it on the table. And so the situation is better now than it was, say, five, five to ten years ago, you know, when, we, when it was all going on under a cloak of secrecy. Uh, we're, 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 in a, we're in a better state. But, of course, the next point to, 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 to wait for to see if the flag is really green is, you know, what is going to be done about the people who've been exposed by the state uh, capture inquiry? Right. Now, one of the kind of knock-on effects of corruption is inflated amounts of money get spent, but large portions of that get stolen. The work that 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 money was for doesn't get done. And one of the things that you see is a serious and dangerous decline in infrastructure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, quality of infrastructure is absolutely essential uh, for a high-performing economy. And, and obviously now, because it's also got to be green infrastructure, you know, we've got to think of ways of, of generating electricity, which, um, you know, don't have such an impact on the environment and everything like that. So you actually need people to run those, you know, state companies looking after infrastructure who really understand uh, that particular uh, game. Um, you know, if, if, if it's electricity, you've got to have been in the industry for a long time. You can't just have a government appointing people who it considers, you know, to be colleagues and friends uh, into those positions. You actually need critical people who've had a lot of experience of that particular industry. And I remember when I did a session in China. Um, at the Central Party School. I was shown around the school afterwards. It's the Leadership Academy for the Communist Party. And, uh, and there was Deng Xiaoping being quoted all over the place on the walls. And I asked one of the professors why. And he said, because in 1978, he said two things. We, the Communist Party, must put a huge emphasis on building new infrastructure for China. And then we've got to allow people to create wealth for, for themselves. And at the time, China was the 100th ranked economy in the world. Now it's number two, and it could overtake America to become the number one economy by 2030. And, and so infrastructure is absolutely vital if South Africa is going to become a winning nation over the next uh, 20 years. So it, if you look at the South African flags, corruption has a knock-on effect to infrastructure the reason yep. there is corruption is because leadership is either perverted in some way or absent or is part of the problem. And that's, that's the third South African flag, leadership. Yeah, it's leadership. And, and you know, I, I have to say that um, I used to negotiate uh, with uh, Cyril when he was the, uh, in the NUM, the National Union of Mine Workers, General Secretary. And I was in a senior position in the Gold Division in Anglia. And, yeah, whatever agreement uh, we came to, you know, everybody kept their word. And so, you know, I, I, I have a very high opinion of that, uh, 
relationship um, that, that I had with him. And I just hope that somehow he can now, post the pandemic, sort of stamp his mark on, on the recovery in the same way that he's had this council of medical experts uh, to whom he's gone uh, for advice and then you know, had his regular TV discussions on a Sunday night. I, I personally believe that we should have another council now of entrepreneurs and people who've actually made businesses and also run businesses. You know, in other words, people with real practical experience to say, these are the two or three things which you, Cyril, should be doing in order to achieve an inclusive uh, recovery for South Africa. Rather than is currently the case, where being politically connected is how that happens yeah. with, with, the, um, with, with, know, with the consequences the that we in see. this country is that we talk endlessly of politically connected. It's, it's so much part of our news. So many senior positions go to the politically connected. And yet we have this incredible talent out there of people who've run real businesses uh, during the tough years when we had little growth uh, before the pandemic started and during the pandemic. And those are the people we need now to tap their wisdom on how we get out of it, not the usual kind of diplomatic kind of figures that you sort of see on these uh, these committees. We want the people who really understand what makes an economy tick. Right. And is that how we get to the fourth flag of using existing pockets of excellence to create more and more and more? Yeah, we have. We've got lots of pockets of excellence in South Africa. I mean, I've always said, certainly, uh, the private schools and, and quite a few state schools are as good as any schools anywhere in the world. It is it is an incredible education if you're privileged uh, enough to get into one of those schools uh, that you can get. Equally, we have university uh, departments which are uh, world-class, and of course, uh, we have companies uh, that are world-class, but we don't give them enough attention. One of the stories I always tell is, is of a uh, a person who applied for the Anglo Open Scholarship in 2008, who came from the Eastern Cape, Siobalela Zuza. And uh, when he uh, arrived for the, um, you know, to, 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 to provide his reasons for getting the scholarship, he, he said, I used to mix chemicals in my mother's kitchen, causing minor explosions to us in dismay. And... Uh, and, and so I want to do chemical engineering at UCT. But he said, I actually started a project uh, where I thought I would come up with a more energy-intensive rocket fuel uh, than NASA. And it took me two years. I, I then uh, built a rocket with a South African team. We put in my fuel and we beat the South African amateur altitude record. The project was entered into a NASA competition in America, uh, which I did incredibly well in. In fact, to the point that they then asked me for uh, my fuel, and I, sh- I-, I-, I sent it to them, and they named a minor planet after me. <laughs> now, how many people in South Africa know that a young guy from the Eastern Cape, you know, who was sort of 16 or 17, had this incredible uh, story. And in fact, he he eventually got a scholarship to Harvard University and did extremely well there and became uh, friends with uh, Michelle and Barack Obama because they all happened to tour NASA at the same time. I mean, 
you know, there are other stories like this in South Africa of fantastic people, but we just dwell on the politicians. And it's ridiculous. You want to motivate people, you tell stories like this. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's the whole um, good news doesn't sell, uh, traditionally, as, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, during the using existing pockets of excellence, you, you used the term entrepreneurship, and that brings us to the second last of the flag, and that is encouraging entrepreneurship and small business development as a way to counteract South Africa's disgraceful unemployment statistic. Yeah, you see the nature of work has changed. I mean, that is a flag in itself. But in the last century... Big businesses were creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. I mean, when I was in the gold mining industry, it employed 600,000 people. I don't know how many people it employs now, but it's nothing like that. Um, and, and there were lots of other manufacturing uh, activities uh, that, that had tens if not hundreds of thousands of people. Those days have gone because of automation and artificial intelligence and robots. And so if you look around the world today, the major creator of jobs is small business. Uh, in America, they've just recently done a survey which shows that two-thirds, two-thirds of new jobs created in America right now are in small and micro business. Right. And because Americans are quite entrepreneurial and uh, do their own thing, you know, they have a very low unemployment rate of 4% compared with our rate of 43%, or, or, you know, which is, which is absolutely ghastly. But the only way we're going to get it down to the kind of uh, level that America is, is to create an entrepreneurial society, which means that we've got to integrate the South African economy into one economy. We still have economic apartheid. We got rid of political apartheid, but we still have economic apartheid where you have separate economies. And we now have to put all our effort into integrating uh, those economies with an emphasis on economic freedom for entrepreneurs. I I did a debate with uh, Julius Malema in 2015, February, uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it was amazing, actually. Uh, we did it in front of an audience in Cape Town at the Cape Sun. And I said, I'm as much of an economic freedom fighter as you are, Julius. It's just that my definition of economic freedom is different to yours. You want to nationalize the banks and the mines and do things like that. I want to really create freedom for ordinary people to establish businesses in the townships or in uh, the major urban centers or in rural areas with help and assistance from big companies, uh, from banks and from others so that they can grow those businesses. And some of them could actually become really successful like Elon Musk, who's now the richest man in the world. You know, that has to be the vision. And that's why I want to have this council of entrepreneurs advising Cyril on the best steps uh, to be taken to get us out of uh, the pandemic into, you know, a new economy. Not the old economy, a new economy where we are entrepreneurially driven and, 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 and people are talking about it all the time and looking at how they can help um, create this, as we call it, people's economy. Yeah. 
It also appears as though a lot more support and a lot less red tape would go a long way. Absolutely. Right. You know, red tape has, has killed a lot of things in small business at the moment. So it, one of the first things one, uh, that Cyril would have to do is to conduct a review of all the regulations affecting small business and startups at the moment because you've really got to make it as, as free as possible. Obviously, you've still got to think about health and safety and things like that, but there's just so much you can do to avoid all the ridiculous uh, red tape that's paralyzing a lot of small entrepreneurs. Yeah. And the final South African flag is the very, very, very thorny, much misunderstood concept of land reform. Yeah. And what I've tried to, to say is it has been a sensitive issue and it has to be addressed. And, and maybe... Uh, like we had a Cadessa, Cadessa in the early 90s uh, to establish a new political system uh, and write a new constitution, uh, we, we really probably need an Agridessa uh, right now where you sit down with um, you know, farmers, particularly the, the, the successful farmers. I mean, uh, the, one of the statistics I quote is that 80% of our food is produced by 20% of the farmers. They're, they're, they're big businesses. And one of the ways that we could certainly uh, spread land ownership is through employee share ownership schemes, where all the people working for that farmer actually share in the ownership of that farm. I remember doing a session with one of the largest dairy farmers in, the, in, in, in South Africa, who's actually based um, in Nature's Valley and in the Eastern Cape. And he's already set up uh, a, a trust um, for a farm next door, which is owned by the employees. And, and so there are just so many things that can be done to change the ownership of land without it just being a simple stroke of the pen that all land in this country belongs to government. You, you, want, to, you want a revolution from below. Uh, with the farmers getting together with the workers and, and coming up with new um, schemes of ownership which allow everybody to, to say, I have my piece of land in South Africa. Wow. I must say, um, I had no idea we would be talking for quite as long as we have been. Um, <laughs> it has, however, been mind-blowing and fascinating in equal quantities um, to to um, be allowed to to pick your brain and let you unpack um, the international and and local flags for us. Um, uh, not not as briefly as I would ever have hoped, <laughs> but yet. These things are, as you say, they're flags. They are things that that we need to be cognizant and mindful of. And there's there's a lot of good advice in a lot of places. And I, I yeah, because I, you cannot predict the future. You cannot actually forecast the future. What you can do is to say these are the, the the most powerful forces that can drive the present into the future. And these are the patterns that can can flow out of those forces, which you then describe as scenarios, which, as I said, should be movie scripts, which really emotionally stimulate people into action.
Exactly. Well, Clem Sunter, thank you very, very, very much for um, taking out uh, all the time that you have. It has been fascinating, as I said. Um, and if you're ever in our neck of the woods, please do come and uh, show your face, <laughs> perhaps unmasked by then. <laughs> I hope so, and I hope one day that I can speak again at Dale College. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you again. Stay thank well. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. On air. On air. Online. Online and all over your world. This is Algoa FM.